0: Mac, nice, uh, nice to meet you. Thank you so much for joining us,
1: guys. I'm flattered, and I loved your episode, the one you did on the uh, on the book.
0: Thank you, thank you for thank you for slogging through it. <laughs> no, no, no,
1: not, not a pro- I watched it twice. I made my wife watch. Wow, wow. I was like, check this out. These guys nailed the whole thing, and he only he only dinged me on a couple of things. I was really happy to get the high scores that, that you guys gave, and it was so refreshing because nobody said anything about it. And that's a real drag.
0: Live from the Talking Joe Studios. It's talking Joe.
2: Talking Joe is on the air. Hey, hey, it's me, Mark. And welcome to Talking Joe with another special episode. Now, uh, last episode, we were talking about the series spy hunter and paperboy for our cobra convergence uh, episode and we loved 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 that uh, series so if you've not yet seen it you can absolutely check out our review and what we uh, see what we thought of it um so we are following up that episode by talking to artist matthew mcrae reynolds Uh, who did all of that wonderful artwork for that series but uh, I will not be talking to Matt alone I of course will be joined by my regular co-host it's a real American Tim it's Tim Finn hello listeners and viewers and hello Mark (laughs) hello Tim Uh, let's introduce our guest shall we so joining us is arkansas resident matthew McRae reynolds he started out in comics back in the early days of malibu on books like airman and the protectors more recently he has worked on the mercenary sea from image the rough and ready show from dc comics and more even more recently uh with Joe writer larry hammer on spy hunter and paperboy so let's introduce him areas hi Matt.
1: hey guys what's going on uh
2: so good of you to join us
1: it's great to be here i was really knocked out by the show that you did it was there was so much uh so much love and uh i watched it twice because i'm a narcissist and i made my wife <laughs> it and say see look they like me so uh, it was cool excellent
0: thank you and and you're welcome
2: and and i think yeah we'll absolutely have to talk uh, about Spy Hunter get your take on on some of the behind the scenes things on uh on the project and and find out if some of our educated guesses on the behind the scenes uh were were true <laughs> or not
1: you did really good excellent
0: matthew matthew macray reynolds what do we call you
1: you can just call me matt matt
0: with a t with one t
1: yeah that that's fine the the macray thing came from uh it was an accident that just stuck to me and I was like, well, okay, if DC likes it, then maybe it sounds like some kind of a, I don't know, rock and roll comic book name or something. So I ran with it.
0: Not to jump too far ahead, but how, how was that accident an
1: accident? I met Shaken at a show and he saw the Vic Falcon stuff. And he was like, this is great. Um, you, but you need to do some work in the majors. And I stayed in touch with him. And my email was mac ray 1973 and he introduced me to everybody at dc as mac and everybody all the editors everybody at dc were all hi mac good to talk with you today chiarello's like mac would you like to do a ghost uh uh, uh, a space ghost cover i was like and they're all calling me mac and i'm too intimidated to say guys what are you calling me mac for you know besides i'm a big fan of mcmurphy from cuckoo's nest who they call mac and i'm a big fan of mccready from the thing who they call mac and i was like okay mac it is that's how it started my wife hates it uh
0: that that clears up so much matt Mm -hmm. with a t all right mark uh back to you and our 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 usual question number one
2: yeah i mean then the mix up with the with the name is a good pedigree because one of my favorite artists uh, is known as either Mick McMunn or uh, Mike McMunn, who was a 2000 AD creator, worked on uh, on Judge Dredd, most famous for, did a series called The Last American. And I, I think this is the way, right, way round. that he was, at, at 2000 AD, he was known as Mick for a long time. It might be the other way around. It might be Mike, uh, but whichever way around it was, it was initially the wrong way around. It was just, uh, they they misheard him when he introduced himself and he was too—he uh, was too polite uh, to correct them, so that's, was that's was exactly called by right the that. wrong name for the yeah best part of twenty years, I think, or that's something. Boring. But uh,
1: when I discovered those two thousand AD comics in the eighties as a kid, I was really knocked out by those. I mean, we didn't see them very often over here. You'd find one in a quarter bin or something. They were they were a special find, you know. I—I I think I remember seeing Bisley's early work in some of those books.
2: Yeah, that's where he got his start. On the likes of abc warriors so yes origin stories what which one happened first for you was it was it gi joe or was it art or was it around about the same time
1: i didn't put enough effort into the artwork until gi joe came out um i mean i was always drawing and i I never i never went to art school or anything but but i always had a a feel for it but there was a time I was maybe 10, and I saw Jaws, and I got so infatuated with sharks, and I really wasn't a big reader until I was 10, aside from comic books, so I went to the public library and got every book on sharks that I could get, and started drawing sharks, because I was infatuated with them, the different species, and then I started drawing, uh, then then I got into The world's most dangerous predators i got into tigers drawing tigers drawing wolves drawing grizzly bears rattlesnakes tarantulas raiders of the lost ark had a huge impact on me and and jaws and for a while i thought maybe i would do wildlife illustration but the gi joe books just really pushed me into i start i started drawing better when i started drawing the GI Joe characters that I really loved, because there was a different feel for me for for you know a, a merciless shark in the ocean whose name I don't know, as opposed to drawing Lonzo Wilkinson, the ex street gang leader that uh, got got his life together and joined the Joes. You know, I mean, I know who Lonzo Wilkinson is. You know what I mean? So that changed things. That put a different feeling on on the artwork that I was doing. So really G.I. Joe is is uh is, it's at the heart of everything I, I do in one way or another. Um the first name I remember recognizing in comic books was Larry Hama. Um and this was from I was getting uh Savage Sword of Conan and G.I. Joe. Those were the only the only things I was I was picking up. And Larry's name was one of the first names that I started to identify as why is this guy's name in all my favorite comics? You know, like you're at that age where you're starting to realize what it means to be an editor, a penciler, an inker. where you're not, I wasn't paying attention to those things.
0: Um, Where in your list of 10 favorite comics did you rank G.I. Joe?
1: Well, my number one favorite comic, the top two slots are, they're always jockeying for position. It depends on, what my what my mood is but over the years it had not changed one of them's going to be number one and one of them's going to be number two and that's that's 21 silent interlude and uh gi joe annual number two by michael golden with the the train and the, the eels and the those two books are probably the most influential comic book work on on my young life but generally speaking almost everything that i work on that's mine for me my stories might as well be G.I. Joe stories. I mean, it's, uh, I'm a G.I. Joe dork. That, that That's all there is to it. So, I mean, even if I'm doing a story set in 1932, you could just say, well, these, this was the precursor to the Joes, you know? I mean, like... <laughs> <clears throat> and um, I loved uh, John Buscema's Conan stuff, How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way. My uncle got me a copy of that book when I was really young. Because it looked like I, I had uh, some ability of some kind and, and I needed some kind of guidance. And he, he found this book and it, it knocked me out. It was incredible. I still love John Buscema to this day.
0: Matt, were you um, buying G.I. Joe toys? Were you watching the cartoon on TV or were you focused on the comic book?
1: Uh, it started with the toys. Um, uh, I got Breaker, I believe. Kibby was my first Joe. Um, and I, I, I seem to remember being bummed out that he didn't come with a piece. I don't think, (laughs) I don't think Breaker came with a piece of steel to deliver death to the Cobras, you know, but, um, and then I, soon after that, I got, uh, Grunt and Stalker and eventually Snake Eyes. I think I got Short Fuse next and maybe Flash so I was the first wave. I was in there in the first wave. I was born in '73, so I was I was the right age. I mean, it was I was who they were aiming for.
0: Did you catch the tail end of the 12-inch GI Joe? Did you get the eight-inch uh, or the 10-inch uh, Super Joe line? Yes,
1: but these were like hand-me-downs from cousins. Like uh, my really, what I remember, I had the Lone Ranger and Tonto. They were the 12-inch Lone Ranger and Tato figures because, so, okay, so I was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and all the reruns and stuff on TV, I'm watching Zorro. I'm watching the Cisco Kid, Lone Ranger and Tato, Star Trek, the original series, Six Million Dollar Man, Starsky and Hutch, SWAT, all, all that 70s stuff. So I had the Six Million Dollar Man 12-inch figure. Um, I had some Migo superheroes, uh, you know, Spider-Man, Batman, Hulk, those guys. Star Wars hits. Had some Star Wars guys. I had some Micronauts. I, I remember stray accessories from the 12-inch Joes, you know, like a random M14 rifle and a canteen and a, a binoculars that didn't really fit anybody except Steve Austin or something. So, now Steve Austin has the automatic machine gun. You know, I mean... <laughs> but, okay, Micronauts. I remember Micronauts, but... I don't remember seeing anything like that first GI Joe figure, like the just the magic of the back of that card that it came on with the little paintings of all the rest of the other Joes. All of that pushed me towards what I do now, graphically. I mean, like there's there's a whole there's a, there's a section I, I think it made it into the Mercenary Sea where there's just character studies of all the characters and I basically used the background. That you guys use for this podcast. I mean, I, I put the Joe Splash behind these characters.
0: So, uh, did you catch the the cartoon on TV?
1: I waited and waited. The books came out. The animated cartoon TV commercials for the comic book. The first one I remember is is Doc and Snow Job going down a uh, uh, icy slope on uh, the. I can't remember Snow Job's vehicle's name. It's not the Bearcat. Battle Bear. Battle Bear. Battle Bear. And that sh- short piece of animation blew my mind. I was like, "Oh my <laughs> god, they're gonna do." There's gonna be a cartoon. It was a Saturday morning Saturday morning cartoon nut too. So you know, I'm growing up with Johnny Quest, other adventure cartoons, as well as all the other cartoons that we all loved. You know, Blue Falcon, Wacky Razors, all that stuff. And sometimes I would see like a, a, an an episode on Saturday morning of I'd flip over and it would be an episode of the Hulk. It would be an incredible Hulk cartoon, but there'd be a bunch of GIs and a base, and so just for heartbeat and time, I'd be like, "Oh God, we got a Joe cartoon," and it wasn't. You know, the first thing I remember was the the miniseries that came on after we all got out of school. Is it the Weather Dominator? Was was that the
0: Weather Dominator is the second mini series, which is September of '84. The first mini series with the mass device is September of '83.
1: Yeah, I remember both those those things. I just didn't remember which order they were in, and it was just so incredible to me. I mean, also at this time, you know, I'm I'm looking at Don Bluth's animation on Dragon's Lair, the video game, at a Seven Eleven at the corner. It was too expensive for me to play. But you could stand there and, you know, drink a big gulp and flip through Savage Sword of Conan while other kids were playing Dragon's Lair. And I was so knocked out by Don Bluth's artwork. At the time, I didn't know his name. He's one of my favorite creators of all time now. But, um, okay, now when I was younger in the 70s, before G.I. Joe came around, there was a time period where I would have migraine headaches. I've since grown out of it. But they were, they were bad. And I'd have to stay home from school and it it was so bad that I, I couldn't I couldn't watch TV because food ads for like McDonald's or something would make me sick to my stomach. I don't know how I don't know how or why exactly that happened, but I'd get nausea. So I couldn't watch TV. So my mom would buy me comic books when I was at home sick. And my favorite ones were GI Combat. So I was already primed for combat comics. I mean that that was a that was a big big part of things as well.
0: Did you have a comic book store in town, or did you later move to a place that had one, or did you find one, or was it? Only- I didn't
1: have a comic book store until the eighties, or until uh, eighty eight. So everything I got pre eighty eight was off the racks at a drugstore or a corner store
0: and and this comic book store did you move did you find one did it open
1: yes we moved to san Marcos, texas and there were i believe two comic book stores there and uh, i mean one of them was really shady i mean it was just it was a <laughs> it was a shed it was just a storage shed behind this guy's house and he just had uh, boxes of of comic books in there and eventually he started picking up new comic books and selling them to us but he had so many old comic books and that that's really when i started getting open up to all of my favorite artists and and seeing stuff and thinking it was weird at first and then being like no wait a minute this this isn't weird this is this guy's a genius you know i mean like uh i remember seeing mike mignola's uh some of his early stuff not rocket raccoon this was this was not not that early, this was a little bit later when he was tor- sort of getting into his becoming who we know him as when he was becoming an, a, the original creature that he became. And I I remember seeing a Thor story, I think it was, and thinking, this is weird. I really like this, uh, <laughs> you know,
2: in terms of G.I. Joe, you did you start with issue one and, and just keep on going? And, and how how long did you keep uh, follow the the comic book?
1: The first Joe book that I got, I got at a Toys R Us, and it was a graphic novel, but it was magazine-sized. It was like an oversized, square-bound, had a, a cardboard, uh, cardstock cover with uh, a Grunt on the cover with his M16 and a giant robot in the background. And I think that's the first, maybe, it maybe the second two issues. It, I don't know. I'm not sure. You guys would know better than I would.
0: I think, I think mine's over there. I'm tempted to go grab it. I don't yeah. want to leave. The, That's with
2: the, with the beautiful El Norum. Yeah, Norum's um,
1: painting. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so this was an imprint at Marvel Comics called Marvel Books. And uh, uh, fans who don't know these for the comic book reprints would know them for the coloring books, like Transformers and G.I. Joe. Coloring books. I had the
1: coloring books too before. Had the coloring books before I had that Joe, uh, whatever it is, Treasury that that book we were just talking about with the Norm cover painting. So I, I, so if I was home with you know not feeling good and and uh, mom would bring bring a Joe coloring book that I thought was incredible.
2: Hmm. That's amazing. And <laughs> Tim's good.
1: Yeah, that's it. That's it. That knocked me out. Now I had the opportunity to get a couple of Joes or one Joe in that book, and so I got one GI Joe and I got that book. That was what I got at Toys R Us.
0: Okay, uh, just to give you a, a size comparison, uh, viewers and listeners, this is a little bit bigger than this random issue of Deathstroke that it just happens to be sitting next to my computer, and uh, this has
1: uh, <laughs> yeah,
0: says these these issues and um it's it's all been has it all been recolored
2: i think it's all been recolored
1: anyway here we go yeah
2: one of my favorite things about that is that they've redrawn the cover to i think it's issue four where uh, hawk randomly had a beret on and they've they've taken the beret off that's on the inside front cover. oh yeah
0: yeah 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 this has issues uh six and seven and three yes anyway uh, as much as i want to talk about this one beautiful object yeah, yeah. um mark you have this very interesting uh, social media post on screen right now what what do you want to ask matt about about these artists
2: yeah so so you've sort of singled out michael golden as as one of your your inspirations and and this this specific cover is is an interesting one issue 36 with this aspen the, the the whale because you might not know this but um it's actually drawn it's on dip like different layers of acetate or, or something Correct. similar so uh so that actually it's it's it functions almost like as animations with all of these different things right existing in different panes right and it and and looking at this sort of struck me as as an inspiration that that that's absolutely what we see from from your art this this treatment of silhouette, but broader than that, the different sort of panes of color sort of, and that color transition very similar to kind of the sort of types of styles that that are employed here on this particular issue.
1: It's one of the areas where you guys just zeroed me zeroed right in much of what I do, aside from, uh, the Alex Toth influence and some, um, Well, okay, I won't go. I'll stick to this for now. Yeah, this is probably my favorite Joe cover, and what the things that I like to try to do are pretty much encapsulated in this cover. This is a time period when Golden's work looked like it had come from an animation cell from a film that did not exist, and there he's he's probably got fifty of these. For for, you know, there's there's some savage sort of Conan stuff, Chris Star. U S one, I think was, a, a, another title that he would do some stuff like this with. And then the Joe annual stuff. If you've ever seen the original artwork for the, the Joe annuals, they're done with a, the same way with that overlay where it looks like he's painting on, uh, an animation.
0: Yeah. The, the cover to yearbook one and the back cover to yearbook two. Right. Back cover to yearbook two has Cobra command and right. that green, That's green it. marble background. That's it.
1: Yeah. So. Mixed with my rabid need to see a G.I. Joe cartoon that wasn't coming uh, and my fascination with uh, video uh, those Laserdisc video games that I saw in arcades in the early 80s, Don Bluth's uh, Dragon Slayer. At the time, I didn't know Don Bluth was an XD, uh, uh, ex-Disney guy, um, but I had seen The Secret of NIMH, which is still one of my favorite movies of all time. I love that movie. I love Don Bluth. And there were other video games at the time when he found that success with that LaserDisc series. Somebody took uh, Castle of Cagliostro and made it into an American video LaserDisc game called Cliff Jumper, where they just took sections of the movie Castle of Cagliostro with Lupin the Third and made a video game out of that. And so again, you're in, in an arcade as a ten-year-old, like, what is what is this? This is incredible. And I really hadn't been exposed to much anime aside from G-Force uh, when, when the Americans got the rights to take Gachaman and turn it into G-Force and bring it to America with slightly different music and change the... Do you guys know what I'm talking about?
2: Yeah, Battle yeah. of the Planets.
1: Battle of the Planets, yeah. And Star Blazers. And uh, I moved around a bunch as a kid, so I couldn't always see those shows. Like, if they one would come on... Be like, this is incredible. Like the opening to G Force or the opening to Battle of the Planets. I was I was running around the house losing my mind. I mean the music. <laughs> bum, 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 you know, I'm I'm losing my mind. It's like I would do the same thing when SWAT <coughs> the TV show would come on. I'd lose my mind to the opening theme, theme song of SWAT. I'd lose my mind to to uh, the opening of the six million dollar man. Like I always get very reverent and very serious during the opening of the $6 million man. I still do. You know, the, the, the wreckage, you know, the, the, the whole accident, you know, it was so dramatic to me as a kid.
0: So Matt, yeah, uh, this issue that we're looking at right now comes out in, uh, must be 85. Mm-hmm. And at that point, uh, you're 12. Mm-hmm. So, when are you starting to get more serious about art, and what are you doing to get more serious about art? Because at the beginning, uh, or just before we hit record, you said you were not trained as an artist. Mm-mm.
1: I just enjoyed drawing, and i had a I had a hand at it, like like uh, I equated to this. And I don't know; people might not agree, but I played little league baseball, and I had good eye hand coordination. Like there was a stretch of time there. I really enjoyed playing second base and shortstop like great time could put the ball where I wanted it. And I seem to have the same ability to put the pencil tip where I wanted it to me. What I do is all eye hand coordination aside from the ability to see the movie in your mind, like the the, take a snapshot of the film in your mind and translate that to the page or how whatever medium I'm, Strictly digital now, but I resisted digital illustration for God until probably 2006 or seven. Like I was real snooty about traditional artwork.
0: As you get to right, so you leave high school and this is a stage where some people might go to art school or like get a job. Yeah or have been like the, the one art person in their high school class. Yeah. So where, where do you
1: go? Okay, so um, 12, uh, when this came out, I am I'm I would have picked this up at uh, 7-Eleven and I would have picked up with all my Savage Sword of Conan comics, would have picked up Savage Tales uh, at that same 7-Eleven. And that had Michael Golden's The Nom. And th- that was this year, this was 85. And I consider well, it wasn't the nom; wasn't called the nom yet. It was the fifth to the first.
0: Yeah, these are these are these these two short stories in this. Yeah. uh, Oh, uh, okay. These like proto nom black and white stories that were in this short lived uh, magazine that Larry Hama edited. Yeah,
1: and that was a graduation for me. To okay, these this is I haven't seen artwork this amazing ever. Like, uh, I wasn't familiar with Russ Heath's work as I am now. Heath is a hero of mine. The work he did on, on uh, the DC combat titles is incredible. Um, but that fifth to the first work, I used to Xerox Golden's black and white pages and color them and it just studied studied the lines over and over and over. I was completely infatuated by it. That mixed with J. Joe Yearbook 2. So now I'm zeroing in on Golden, and he's making everybody else look dumb. Like in my <laughs> book, he's like every, every it's like everybody else is just farting around with muscle men and spandex. Golden is killing it with this, and uh, now that's not true. That you're you're <laughs> you're hearing the voice of a 12 or a 13 year old. So I, I don't feel that way anymore. But but um, on top of that, it was a very mature title. Guys are smoking dope in that. Guys are getting their faces blown off. I mean, uh, uh, it had to be in black and white. If it would have been in color, it would have been so gruesome that, uh, you know, it would have been like watching Platoon or Apocalypse Now. It, it was, it was incredible and shocking and burned itself, burned itself into me. So I go from there. Then we moved from Tulsa to a little town in Arkansas. And there was one drugstore there that had comic books and they didn't carry G.I. Joe. They didn't carry Savage Sword of Conan. They didn't carry any of my books, but they did carry. um, Okay. Wait a minute. I'm, I'm, I need to go back a little bit. The Hellfire Club. When the X-Men Hellfire Club book came out, there was a a collection of John Burns Hellfire Club stories. At some point I got my hands on one of those. And that was incredible. John Byrne's artwork knocked me out. Before that, the only books that I was following monthly was Savage Sword of Conan. And those aren't those stories don't bleed from one issue into the next. They're all completely different, not associated with one another. The Joe comic was the first one where the the next comic probably has something to do with the one that came out before it. And when I'm in Arkansas at that drugstore, I remember picking up um, X-Men Fantastic Four with John... Uh, John Bogdanovich, his artwork, and Bogdanov. Bogdanov, yeah, not Bogdanovich. Uh, (laughs) I'm thinking I'm a movie director. Um, yeah, Bogdanov, and I I thought it was incredible. And I was 13 or 14, and I waited eagerly for the next month to get the next issue. And that artwork, that was when I started trying to copy his drawings. That mixed with my infatuation with. the Joes. I started drawing cartoony, like Navy SEALs or recon Marines or green berets. Like uh, I had, I'd go to an Army Navy store and see a t-shirt with a Navy SEAL in a rubber boat stacked full of all these weapons and grenades and stuff. And it's kind of cartoony looking something that that a SEAL might buy. And I started doing drawings like those. And at this time, I, I, I was really trying to figure out if I was going to do wildlife illustration or comic book stuff, because I think this was the year I, I found White Fang. I found it later than most people do, and it's still my favorite book. I know that may mean I'm not very sophisticated, but White Fang is my favorite book, and so I start, I, I went back to drawing wolves, tigers, and lions, and sharks. And then, so from there, 14, so, so then moved to San Marcos, Texas. Now I have a comic book store. And that's when everything changed. Now I can get my hands on all kinds of stuff. I was really into Epic Magazine, reprints of uh, Epic Magazine with all the painted stuff. And uh, you remember those books from the late 70s, early 80s? There was heavy metal, Epic Illustrated, right? Was one of them. So now I'm seeing Barry Windsor Smith's painted stuff. And I'm, I'm seeing all kinds of people's work in those 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 books. And really, really just starts to blow me away. And when I moved to San Marcos, okay. My dad was a pro football player. I'm a big dude. Okay. And when I moved to San Marcus, I had been playing basketball in Arkansas. When I came to San Marcus, they had a football team and there was an ex pro football coach was the coach of the football team. And he finds out that my dad was a pro ball player. And he's like, we want you to play, play on the football team. And I did that for a couple of years. It, my heart wasn't in it. Baseball was where my heart was, but, um, but I also had taken some uh, some artwork with me to the school and qualified for advanced art. Like this was a bigger school that I was in now, and the artist had seen my artwork and he's like, "Yeah, you qualify for for advanced art. You 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 go right to the right to the top with with as far as your access to these these courses." And so yeah, I was basically one of those guys for like three or four years in my high school that could just draw cool shit and make new friends by drawing things. I moved around so much. Most of what the, art, the artwork that, that I would do would really help me make friends. I mean, that was a huge part of it and making friends laugh and drawing crazy things and-
0: uh, Jump back because before we uh, hit record, you also mentioned that issue 21, Silent Interlude was a big influence, mm-hmm. but that would have come out before you moved to where there was this comic store. So you got that at the drugstore too?
1: yeah m- multiple issues of that book cover fell off the first one i had
0: okay because you were you were looking at it so much you were
1: yeah and, and i was drawing pictures from it i mean i, I was copying that as, as a very young man 10 11 or 12 some somewhere around in there and i still have multiple copies of that book i mean i have i i have multiple copies of annual two with golden story in it i've got them stashed in my truck For when I'm stuck in traffic, I can go into the glove box (laughs) and open that up. I've got them in hiking gear, like backpacks that have survival (laughs) shit in my backpack. And that comic book and White Fang are in that backpack. Uh, Yeah, I've got them stashed all over the house.
0: (laughs) All right. So you finish high school and you need to get a job. So comics?
1: Oh, uh, uh, let's see. Taco Bell, I think. Um, Taco Bell, McDonald's. Uh, I worked at, a, uh, I, the, the coolest job I had back then was uh, at a movie theater. Where I was like projectionist assistant, sort of. friend of mine was the projectionist, but, you know, I would help him out with stuff and do concession stand stuff. And uh, I did a piece of artwork for a grocery store in San Marcos. Got like paid $25 to do like a Chester Cheetah, Cheetos display um first professional job is this um you doing
0: the original or is this something for reproduction
1: no this was just some guy in in whose daughter went to school with me and he was a manager at the grocery store and he was like she was in my art class and he was like you're really good would you do this display uh for chester cheetah
0: so your, your original art is what's actually that's correct. Sort of yeah. sticking up around some bags of, of chips. That's, that's <laughs> okay. yeah. It's not, it's not like they put your drawing on, no, a, no, no. on a shirt not or a bag all. or no. a poster. Okay. No, this is
1: 25 bucks. Uh,
0: okay. So, so when are you, when are you like going to conventions or finding editors?
1: After the Chester Cheetah, I painted a comic book store sign, painted a, a, a plywood sign out in front of a comic book store. The guy that had the shack out behind his house. Hired me to do a Spider-Man on a flagpole out in out in front of his house. So I did that one. The, okay, then I moved to Okay, there's here here's a funny thing in this time period. Mom won't like this, but whatever. It's 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 how things go. So I got into a little bit bit of trouble in high school for cutting class and uh got uh, two weeks in-house detention. So you, you you're not allowed to go to class. They put all the hoods in one room with cubicles around them. And like one of the football coaches is in charge of monitoring you all day. And you get your homework assignments at the start of the week on a Monday and you have to turn them all in by Friday. And so you have your books, but you're in this cubicle. You can't see other the other hoods that you're in the class with the other guys are cutting class or doing what sneaking beer into school. So you're, you're cut off. And you've got like uh, one of the hard ass football coaches is in there making sure nobody is up to any shenanigans that everybody's got their head down. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. So the cool thing was I grew more as an artist in that two week detention period than I did ever in my life because we got our – the coach came in, gave us all of our assignments from all of our teachers, gave, gave them to us on a Monday. And he said to us, you guys complete these? You can screw off the whole rest of the week. So I would complete all my work on that Monday for the whole week and then have four days of eight hours of sitting alone in this cubicle with my comic books, copying panels from comic books. And the exercise that I gave myself was you've got to draw one thing from every page in this comic doesn't matter what it is, you can't skip a page, but you got to reproduce one thing from every page of this comic. It was like an assignment that I gave myself because I didn't get any assignments from my art teacher. At the time, I was in Advanced Art 4, the most advanced art course that the high school had. But So I was getting assignments from everybody but Mr. Harrington. So I gave myself the assignment that you have to draw one thing from every page in this comic book. And that started... That was the whirlwind, basically. That, that That was the... That was when things really started to come together. It was like, I don't want to draw, uh, I don't, I don't give a shit about drawing fire hydrants. Well, draw the fire hydrant. You're going to have to know how to draw fire hydrants. So draw the fire hydrant, you know, and you can't just go through this whole thing and draw booby girl. You can't pick her out on every page and draw her. You need to draw a car or or a building or something, you know? And, uh, I, I grew so much during that time period. So, um moved, unfortunately, moved um, at the end of my junior year to a brand new school in uh, Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, my senior year. That's a drag. Moving your senior year in with a bunch of strangers. But I, again, qualified for the advanced art courses that they had there and started drawing my own comic books and then started taking them around to shops and uh, meeting other comic book artists, guys that were local that wanted to produce their own work. Did a couple of black and white things for them, went to some conventions, bumped into uh, the editors at Malibu. At the time, R.A. Jones was also living in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He saw some of my work at a comic book store, asked if, if, uh, uh, me to put some pages together, introduced me to some of the editors from Malibu because he was working for Malibu at the time. Uh, I did Airman. You guys let that cat out of the bag, so now everybody's gonna know what a chump I was because that book looks awful. But that's the way it goes. At the time, I was trying to—I was not doing what I'm doing now. I was trying to do uh, some combination of uh, Simon Bisley, Todd McFarlane, Silvestri, Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, you know. That stuff that looks ridiculous and uh, not theirs. Their stuff looked good. Mine looked ridiculous. I hadn't found my own voice as a as an, an artist yet, you know. So I do that stuff and uh, did the book in Malibu, and, yeah. And then there's there's like a stretch of time where uh, I didn't do comic book stuff. I was doing other stuff. So um,
0: other art stuff.
1: Some. Um, but instead, uh, I, I needed to get out of town and get a job at, uh, uh, a steel refinery in Oklahoma City. So I went there and started working at the steel uh, through, uh, you know, my, my father. So ended up working at the steel mill, still doing drawings. Um, but a full day's work at the steel mill, you don't have any juice at all to, to, to do artwork when you get home. Like there's, there's just nothing there. And then, uh, I fell in love with the chick. Split, came back to uh, San Marcos, Texas, was still doing artwork, ended up getting a job uh, at a graphics company. And so uh, now I'm 20 and basically stayed doing graphics for 14 years. I mean, like there were, there were some other comic book stuff in between. But I spent 14 years working with a graphic program, integrating my traditional artwork with uh, uh, Illustrator and Photoshop. Learning how to use those programs.
0: Well, uh, I just I want to zoom in one little bit there. All right, so fourteen years at this graphics house. Were you doing logos for local businesses? Sure. Were you doing ad campaigns? Sure. or doing layouts for catalogs? Yeah, sure.
1: Were you all of the above?
0: Uh, and this is this is this isn't web design. This is like a decade before that. No, right? this
1: is this is traditional. Yeah, this is not web design.
0: Okay, so you you have an Exacto and you you were using rubber cement and you're making like negatives of things and you're using like Ruby lith film. Okay. Right? Yes.
1: All that stuff was there, but I was just after that time, basically.
0: Okay. Oh, cause, 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 there were computers. Okay. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. So what's, what's
0: the, what's the thing that starts your sort of modern career in comics? Who do you meet or where do you go or who sees what of yours?
1: Okay. Uh, 9 happens and I'm living in a shoebox apartment. I mean, I'm living in an apartment. It was an extremely small, small apartment. And I'm alone. And 9-11 happens. And that hit us all psychologically pretty hard, you know. And it really lit a fire under me as far as, okay, what do you want to do creatively? I mean, you've got what it takes. What do you want to do? I shifted my focus from wanting to be like, how will I be good enough to draw the X-Men? And who's going to see me? so that I could draw a Wolverine or Conan and shifted to what would I really like to do? And I was a G.I. Joe fanatic and I was a Nick Fury fanatic. And I was like, I wanna do a story. Um, And so I started putting together a story, the Vic Falcon story, which is just all the Johnny Quest, Indiana Jones, a G.I. Joe, I wanted it to feel like that you know and i wanted to have the animation influences of don bluth and 9 11 happens people are dying couples are holding hands and jumping off the top of a burning building or watching them it was very sobering and uh i was like well you know if life's not guaranteed i need to get on the stick with this I, what is it that i want to do and would it bring something better out of me out of my work and so i so i focused really heavily on uh, uh vic falcon um i'm trying to remember was there something before this
2: it was just talking about the the timing of of 2001 and that being the the kick up the ass to to kind of refocus on on comics in terms of gi joe at that time it was being relaunched by image slash devil's dew productions was that on your radar at that point in time as well
1: no all, all of my Joe memories were burned into me before I was 14 or 15. Seared, um, into me. My characters were like the first four waves of guys. Like, those are my guys. Like, I don't really know the guys after, uh, I think, I think Flint was in my last wave of my Joes. I think that's, that's wave five. I remember Beachhead just because my little brother had Beachhead and I thought he was cool. Beyond that, I had started shifting into run DMC, uh, you know, golden age hip hop and like actual throwing stars and nunchucks and uh, nunchucks and butterfly knives. And, and I was drifting away from the toys and getting into more dirt bikes and switchblade combs and, and, you know, martial arts movies.
2: So even, even by the, like the fifth year or so of the GI Joe comic, you're kind of beginning to kind of stray away of from from that of all of the less your era, I guess of of Joe.
0: I want to jump on that Vic Falcon collage for a moment. So, Matt, yeah, what what uh, what is the format of Vic Falcon? Was it a pitch? Did you publish it? Who saw it?
1: It was going to happen. It it was happening. Like uh, that, the, we I had an investor and. I contacted Larry Hama because I wanted Larry to work on the project with me. I contacted Howard Mackey and I contacted them both at the same time. Both of them were um, flown out to uh, Dallas. I drove out to Dallas to meet with those guys. Really funny story, getting to meet your hero, Larry Hama. So I walk into the hotel, Larry's there. I had talked to him the night before on the phone. We'd had a few phone meetings. And he said i've got a a buddy of mine out there around dallas the character i based wild bill on there might be a day where where i have to step away and go say hey to my ace because he's out there i was like okay and that the next day that saturday i said uh to larry that next morning i've got this really cool army navy shop it's my favorite army navy surplus shop in dallas it's called omaha's and i said i really want to take you there i want you to see this place and I said, but I didn't know if you were going to go see Wild Bill today. And he said, Wild well, Bill's not out here. I just tell that to guys in case you all turn out to be assholes and I need to get away with it. <laughs> so that was really – because really, I bought a hook, line, and sinker, sneaker. And I was like, Wild wow, Bill, wow. Yeah, so we went, we went to the surplus store, um, picked up gear in there. I get to go through a surplus store with my hero, Larry Hama. And look at surplus gear. And I'm I'm picking gear up because I'm a gear hound. I mean, I've got I love I, I love vintage surplus gear. And I buy basically two of everything, so that I got one and my wife has one. And I get to uh I get to these heavy-duty field medical supply section, like with these really serious, huge gauze pads for serious bullet wounds. And Larry's like, it's impressive that they've got these here. I was like, yeah, I better get one. He goes, no, you better get two. Because I'd been picking up a, two of everything else. And I said, oh, yeah, one for me, one for my, my wife. He goes, no, one for the entrance wound, one for the exit wound. I was like, whoa. So, you know, I'm hanging out with Larry in a surplus store getting all this cool inside baseball. You know, he was talking to me about the long range for patrol guys. We were talking about gear. And I said to him, you know, and all because I studied Vietnam stuff. I was like, I see pictures of these guys. They got four canteens on them. And uh, Larry was like, yeah, not only that, they're all topped off all the way to the top. So they don't slosh whatsoever in the field. Yeah, they got four of them and they're topped all the way off. And when you go to drink out of that canteen, you empty the whole canteen and you don't drink again until you absolutely have to have a drink because you don't want anything sloshing around in a canteen in the field. So I'm hearing all this cool stuff, you know? I'm loving this stuff. So we, I start putting this stuff together. What I didn't understand at the time was Larry took the idea, liked the ideas of Vic Falcon. But I had plots and stuff laid out, stories. But Larry's his own man. He does his own thing. And he would have done that for Vic Falcon. And I would have loved for him to do that for Vic Falcon. But I ended up at a convention with this Vic Falcon stuff, several pages laid out on, on a table. Howard Shade comes along, asks me, where's the coffee? And I said, it was before before a show on a Saturday. I said, it's this way. Come on, I'll show you where it is. And uh, we were walking back past my table. And I said, this is my stuff. He stopped there. He says, my God, you don't entirely suck. And, uh, <laughs> started looking at the pages and he said, listen, just before the show starts, come down and sit with me, okay, and bring your your digital pad with your artwork on it. And I sat down there with, uh, with Howard and he got all my information. And although rough and ready is no Vic Falcon and it is not the mercenary Sea, I totally skipped the mercenary C stuff. I shouldn't have done that.
0: Vic, Fa- Vic Falcon is before mercenary C it's
1: after, um, I, oh, okay. But, okay. But here's the thing. all right. Mercenary,
0: mercenary C is published in 2014.
1: Yeah. But he- here's the thing. Vic Falcon was born on nine 11. I started putting that story together. My baby is Vic Falcon. I started putting that together after the towers came down. Okay. Yeah. So um, so right before the last Jones movie came out, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, I started doing these silhouette pieces of Jones. They were just one-offs. And they were on uh, DeviantArt. And it shot up to the, like, the most popular Indiana Jones fan art on DeviantArt. And somebody in some publication, I can't remember who it was it might have been Kotaku I could be wrong Captain but um did an article on my Indiana Jones art and just said this guy draws scenes from an Indiana Jones film that doesn't exist you've got to see this guy's artwork and the writer of the Mercenary Sea saw this artwork uh Cal saw the artwork and uh said hey man you you want to work on a book let's pitch a damage I was like yeah sure and uh, what he had pitched was like this uh noir humphrey bogart kind of crime horror story but i didn't know who kell was at the time so i said no nah, i'm not really into that which is stupid because i should have done it it would have looked great but i told him about a story i was working on about these world war one veterans that build a boat an armored boat and they go to a place like skull island to find a treasure and help out these natives like the magnificent seven that are being pestered by these pirates and based on that he just comes up with the mercenary sea about this crew of rogues on a, a submarine that are you know looking for a lost island or a lost treasure and this was really fun there was a big serious transition from my artwork here though because in the middle of this series i got a pad where i could actually draw on the screen Everything there was, there was like you, you can if you go through the Mercenary Sea, you'll see a, a there's a drastic change at some point later in in the story.
0: OK, so the Mercenary Sea runs eight issues. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the series, uh, in the letters page, uh, you and Simmons say uh, we're changing our schedule. We're, we're going to we'll be back next year with more story, but it, we can't do a monthly Yeah, I'm under the impression that there are a lot of image series which launch, you know, like a a writer and an artist get something approved at image, but they have to fund the first couple issues themselves, like pay for the colorist, pay for the right uh, letterer. Uh, Maybe they're also the colorist, Um, but basically either do it at night or do it on weekends or sort of do it with money that they've saved up from their other job, because at image, with some exceptions, you don't get paid until issue three comes out right? because of how the economics of stores ordering, and then the print run is set, and then the issue ship, and then the issues arrive, and then it's the second issue, and then it's the third issue. And so there are many image series which only go four issues or eight issues or 10 issues, and uh, and then the creators take a break, go do something else, and come back. Or it just doesn't sell well enough, and they take a break, and that's it. So- Will we see more Mercenary Sea?
1: It's possible. Um, the balls that were dropped were dropped by me on the Mercenary Sea. The opportunities that Kel gave me were wonderful. My problem at the time was I was too timid uh, to tell him what I did and did not wanna do. And so I began not liking some of what was going on, um, not being too excited about some of what was going on. And instead of being uh, enough of a man to be frank, to stand up and say, I don't want to do that. Uh, I want to do something else. I want to take this a different direction. Um, I just sort of slowly let it kind of take the wind out of my sails. There's a very real part of me. And I don't know how many other comic book artists deal with this, but there's a very real part of me that is like a stand up comedian. Um, and that I need the feedback of the crowd to know when I'm hitting my marks. It sounds very narcissistic and very egotistical, but I need positive feedback from the people that I work with. I need them to say, not just, ah, yeah, cool, cool page. You know, I need them to say that leopard in that tall grass right there is badass that really works. Or the shading that you put on his hand up there holding the machete with that kind of a, it's, it's not a hard line. It's like chalk. It's cool. It looks cool in the the crossing. I need that, that feedback or I start to internalize negatively. And it probably says something about the way I'm internally wired. I don't know how many other comic book artists go through this, but when Kel was working with another artist on another project, and this is early on when we started the Mercenary Sea. And he had offhandedly said, guy wants me to tell me tell him how great he is all the time. I was like, oh, okay, that's too bad. You know, what a what a dumbass that guy was. Instead of saying, Well, do you give him positive feedback? You know, I mean, uh, you know, um, but I would love to work on the mercenary sea again with Kel. Kel was more mature than I was. If I would have been if I would have not been as subordinate as I felt because I did feel in a very subordinate role and I would have stepped up and said, no, let's let's do something else. Or I ain't impressed with that. Um because, you know, I was on an image book. I was on a, a one of the top three American comic book publishers. You know, I, I didn't know if I was on shaky ground. Uh Kel made the whole thing happen. And not only did he, he make it happen, we had a small page rate which is almost unheard of, that image. But the sales didn't end up being where they needed to be. You know, I was late on some issues. Part of it had to do with the fact that the working methods that I were using took so long. Things changed when I could actually draw directly on the screen with a stylus. Because what you see that I do is digital painting. You were trying to explain in the last show, Reynolds doesn't put a black line around something and drop color into it. No, it's, a, it, it's essentially, I'm, it's a painting. I'm painting these things is the best way to describe it. But I was still learning how to do all that stuff. But Kel, actually, uh, he, he came to me. Some months had gone by. I'd picked some other paying, up work, paying work elsewhere. And I and I put together these really good pages for the next issue of uh, Merc C. And he said, I, I got bad news for you, man. I don't think there's going to be any page rates. Like, they're going to publish it. There's not gonna be any more page rates. And unfortunately, instead of just running with it and saying, okay, well, we'll see if we can, if I can get us back afloat on this thing. What I said was, that's unfortunate. I'm gonna to have to find paying work elsewhere. And that's where it stopped. And I, I feel kind of bad or ir- irresponsible. I mean, it's actually not even that bad. What happened? What went down's not even that bad. It's just that I do have a great fondness for, for the Mercenary Sea. All
0: right. So Mercenary Sea is 2014 and Rough and Ready is 2017. Yeah. So and that, that story Vic you Falcon, told, the story you told about you and Shaken at a, a convention that happens after.
1: Yes. So 2015, 2016, I've got a somebody willing to invest in trying to push Vic Falcon as some sort of an IP. Like okay. how, how we can push it, we can publish it, see if we can uh, get a script or or take it to uh, um, possibly television or animation or or something. And during that time period, I'm you know Larry and I meet, hang out, and talk about stuff, and and uh, and I'm, I begin putting those images together, pouring a lot. And at the same time, I'm working. Uh, at a fire and safety company in San Marcos, I leave the graphics company. So I'm working fire and safety and doing the Vic Falcon stuff.
0: Okay, wait, you left the graphics company. Were you doing Mercenary C while you had a day job?
1: Um, Yes. Oh. Yeah.
0: Okay, And then earlier when you mentioned this Vic Falcon story, you said uh, Howard Mackey, who's a comics writer, with yeah. a bunch of stuff at Marvel, right? It's yeah. known for Ghost Rider. Yeah. He and Hama, flew to Texas. How did you, how did Mackie get involved? What was he going to do that Hama wasn't going to do or how was that going to work? Or were you hoping one of them would sort of knock the other out?
1: No, no, it was, it was, um, I, I had been in, I met, uh, I'd gone to a convention, uh, invited, been invited to a handful of conventions because of the mercenary sea stuff. And he was at a show and we just hit it off. Um, and um I thought it'd be really fun to work with him on the Vic Falcon stuff and and then I also I had contacted Hama um on Facebook or some I believe that's the platform and when when the investor went in on the thing I was like yeah and and I said can we get these guys a page rate because they'll come in and and they'll punch this thing up I mean they'll they'll it'll be a blast he knew who they were he was like yeah sure so The same day, I didn't know not to do this, but I sent them both the same email on the same day and uh, (laughs) not thinking I wouldn't hear from either of them. And uh, Mackie responded immediately, flew to Dallas, hung out. We rapped about it. And then Hama responded two or three months later and we flew him out and we rapped about it. So uh, what Vic Falcom was going to be was going to be an anthology book involving all the characters from Vic Falcon. And the main, it would be like an old issue of uh, GI combat where he, ha, Mackie would have his character in this universe. That would be uh, whatever, six or seven pages per month. And Larry would have his character in this universe. That would be six or seven pages per month. And I'd have the, the meat would be Vic and, his, Vic and his amigos, you know?
0: Okay. Um- I I I'm sensing that you uh, uh, are very lightly describing the investor because this project didn't, didn't go forward. And so I'm not asking for any details or inside information, but can you tell us in a very general sense, how, how did an investor find you and what was the scale of this beyond an anthology comic? Because I can't think of a lot of investors who are like, I want to publish a comic because comics make a lot of money. So how did how did you find this person? How'd they find you?
1: He was he was at a, a comic book shop that I was invited to in Dallas, Fort Worth. He's a, he was a comic book fanatic. We were basically the same age. He, he loved the Mercenary Sea. I mean, he, he was like he just loves loved that style. The the GI Joe GI Combat like these aren't superheroes. They don't have any special powers. Uh, these are human beings that are that love one another, that are relying on each other in really hard situations to survive and get out of this situation. So they a real strong sense of family and survival.
0: And and was the plan uh just a a comic? Was it going to be, you know, like oh, we'll do a movie, we'll do a show, we'll do
1: toys. The plan was to push it as, yeah, toys. The plan was to push it as far as it could be pushed. Okay. I mean, initially, when we first sat down for our first meal, he said, would you like to do a Johnny Quest comic book? Because like me, he was a Johnny Quest fanatic. I was like, yes, but Warner Brothers had Johnny at the time. So that was not something we could do. And then I said, what about Land of the Lost IP? He, was, he and I were both virtually the same age we grew up in the 70s and 80s so we grew up well, like all the same stuff we both loved land of the lost so the idea of getting a license to do land of the lost ip only it wouldn't be marshall will and holly they they would be gone or it would be something that happened before they got there let's do it with a team of green berets in vietnam that get swept down a river and end up in the land of the lost and but they're all green berets he was like, "This is fun. Let's do that." You know. So, okay.
0: And then, um, who who had connections to take this further than a comic?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there were uh, the guy that owned the comic book shop was savvy. He'd done his own okay. stuff. You're a comic okay. shop guy. You you understand more than the average Joe about how some of these things work. You know that since then, I I have gotten into that world more. Like where. Uh, Here's the thing: the guy just had a little bread, and he dearly loved comics, and he dearly loved combat and adventure comics. He was we were just cut from the same, the same s- strip. I mean, uh, basically, at the same time Joe stopped mattering him to him, and Run DMC started mattering to him more was basically the same time I started getting into you know Run DMC and, and more into girls and and uh, sports and uh, you know that that kind of stuff we have many of the same memories and the same nostalgic love for things that we hadn't seen i mean uh it's like nope even d c so i i I don't want to bitch and moan too much here <clears throat> but d c comics has a legacy of combat comic book characters it's insane the 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 stable of legacy characters that they have. The glorious history of combat comics, and they used to be on top. DC in the 70s, they were on top. GI Combat, all their non superhero related books Grave Digger, Khan of the Ninja, The Mercenaries, uh, uh, Weird War, many, many, many other, and they don't do anything with them. We wanted to try to revive this, that spirit um, of, of GI Joe and Johnny Quest and, Land oh, and Matt, Yeah.
0: How? Okay, so how much of Vic Falcon exists how many uh, sample pages did you do did Hama or Mackie write anything how much did you produce
1: I produced a lot of a lot of artwork and I've got the f- I've got the first quote movie like the the first adventure that would probably be um, I don't know you know you can t- condense these things I would say uh, it would be a uh, Oh, it hustled along as a four-issue miniseries, but today it would probably publish, be published as a six or an eight-issue series, depending on. So
0: you have many, you have many issues
1: done. No, no, no. You have not done written, but okay, written. characters okay. designed and, and things okay. like that. And I was in the middle of working on that stuff. Um, Larry was basically, and I don't know who else he does this for. It was just very fortunate, but Larry was just. I would just send him stuff every week that I was working on. And he would just be like, neato. You know, I mean, there was, he wasn't writing anything. He was just being my buddy. He was being my, the father of GI Joe. My, my, you know, this is like me getting to work with Marlon Brando or Steven Spielberg for some people, you know, I mean, this literally would be like me putting work together, sending it to Steven Spielberg and Steven going, neato, you know, uh, or, uh, Put some, uh, put some running lights on those boats. You see pictures of them at night. You see those running lights. so put a blue and a, a green and a red running light on that boat, make, put some haze and make it pop. You know what I mean, it was just fun. It was like he was like, just being my buddy, you know I mean.
0: Okay, so Chakin sees your stuff and wants you to get published by the uh, Marvel, Marvel or DC by the big guy.: He
1: says, "This is great, but you're not going to go anywhere until you go to the majors. People are going to have to know your name or you're not. It's just going to lay there. Nobody's going to care.
0: OK, so DC uh, around 2016 does some Hanna-Barbera related projects. Yeah. And yeah. so it's these modern uh, revisions like Flintstones and. Uh,
1: wacky Racers.
0: Wacky Wacky Racers. Johnny Quest, Johnny Quest and and this one uh, rough and ready. Um, so. Uh, were you familiar with it and was it sort of like anything to work for the majors or were you like, Hey, something different. Or were you like, Hey, this is off brand for me. Uh, cause this is such a, the, the DC Hanna Barbera work from around 2016 is, uh, this very interesting sort of forgotten slice of publishing, which has not been followed up on. Yeah. So how did you, how did you, feel sort of getting cast here
1: well um one howard uh embraced me like he was like look you you can you got something here you i see your love i i I, you've got something here i got to get you in uh to to meet these people at dc and i'm gonna act as your rabbi which was his quote (laughs) i'm gonna act as your rabbi on this and, um, I was like, okay. And he, he was like, you, they, they want to do this rough and ready thing. And I want to do like this historical take on history and, uh, satirical. And I don't know if you guys know this, but as far as all those Hanna Barbera titles go, this one, rough and ready, the rough and ready show is not like the other ones. This is, this is a, this is a wild story. It's crummy and pissy and political and, uh, very sounds like uh, sounds like Jacob. Yeah, and I m- I mean that yeah, as a I know I know ugly and human and flawed individuals, and we get uh, we dance through uh, you know from the nineteen forties and fifties all the way. We it's a trip through time of the entertainment industry, film, television, with these characters. Okay, so w- one when he said Do you want to work with me on this, I just immediately said yes because Howard's my rabbi, and it's DC. And he said, You need to go to the majors if you want anybody to see Vic. So I was like, Okay. Uh, Two, there's a lot of vintage historical stuff going on in this. So I get to draw cool suits from the 50s and 60s. I get to draw old cars. I get to draw older buildings uh, and, you know, cop interrogation rooms. And uh, like, I was going to be able to do stuff that I liked to do. Three, I'm a Don Bluth fanatic. I love animation. I love traditional animation. So it was like, I love the spirit of this. I can figure this out. I'll figure it out.
0: But I would point out that there is a big difference between Bluth at his own studio uh, and Bluth at Disney, feature quality full animation, and the budget-limited flat TV animation that Hanna-Barbera was making in the 60s and 70s. You're absolutely right. but you're you're pulling something, you're pulling the part of it, like the good design. Yeah. You're pulling the one part of it out of it that you can make your own, and then because it's shaken, yeah. you can run with it. Yeah,
1: yeah. Okay, well, you, what you just addressed is very, very true And uh, as far as where it lives in my heart. Yes, there's a huge difference between watching The Secret of Nim or The Jungle Book and watching uh, Scooby-Doo. But there's still a part of me that, is very much in love with uh Alex Toth's design work um on those many of those cartoons or or Doug Wildey's work on Johnny Quest, you know. I just I have a deep love for it. Um and my stuff was not going to be moving. So it wasn't actually going to be the the endless nightmare of doing actual animation. I could just pretend like they were snapshots from an animated feature, you know.
0: Okay, so um Uh, Shaken does the regular covers and you do the variant covers. Yes, that's right. Okay. So did this book make a splash? Did it? Did it get you what Shaken wanted?
1: It it did for uh, because, okay. So, so, so now we're getting into the the modern era. So he introduces me over there. Everybody's calling me Mac. I'm just running with it. Yeah. Yes, it's Mac. Um, And Chirillo was the art director.
0: That's that's Mark Cirello yeah. who who comics fans will know for occasionally drawing or painting, basically Batman stories or covers, but mostly known as an editor. And then when he was promoted, uh, art director at at DC.
1: Yeah, and he did he did some old Wolverine stuff and some stuff at Marvel early early in the game. He also had a very unique style. that was influential on me. But he so he hits me up and he says, while well, we're waiting for all this rough and ready crap to happen. You want to do a space ghost cover? (laughs) And I was like, yeah. And uh, he was just really enthusiastic. Uh, And so, you know, I I put together the space ghost thing and he's, he's just a big kid. He's a lot like Larry, you know, it's like I could send him something and his first reaction is neato. Wow. You know I mean? You know, it's, it's, uh, and so I send him the, the uh, space ghost roughs that I had and he, he goes, cool. Isn't this fun? Like that was his, that was his official email to the shitbird artist that he didn't know from Adam and instantly starts treating me like we're, we're buddies on a playground.
0: All right, one, one more bit of context for our listeners. So I think that was a good comparison you just made with Hama because most of us think of Hama as a writer. Of course he's an artist, but he was an editor yeah. and he was one of the very few editors at Marvel who had drawn comics yes. right we think a lot of editors are like kind of writers or they're writers or they want to be want to be writers right. and Ciarello on the DC side is like the one DC editor who draws and paints yeah. and so his sensibility is uh fine tuned in a different way from a lot of other editors at DC no. and and we're, we're recording in 2023 he's no longer there yeah. but he was there for a long
1: time yeah. um my trajectory over there was much better when he was there he had the issue uh, number one of the Mercenary Sea blown up into a poster and put on the wall in his office at DC. The picture of the guy climbing up the rock. There's a Japanese scout at the top looking out over the sea with his binoculars. He had that picture blown up and put in his office. I didn't know this until after he left. We've stayed friends, <laughs> uh, and I still talk to him. That's it. He had that blown up and put on his wall in the DC office, and he didn't tell me this until like. A year and a half after, you know, he, he got canned and I was like, wow, he's like, yeah. So your work was actually in the office. Like people saw this thing, you know, I was like, cool. You know what I mean? Uh, okay. So what, what happens because of,
0: or after rough and ready or you connecting with Chiarello?
1: Uh, okay. So I'm finishing up rough and ready. There's a couple of scenes in the book where I I've drawn these vintage cars. And Dan DeDio, who I'm friends with on Facebook, I see a post during Christmas. He said, Yeah, just having a couple of bourbons and watching Godzilla. And I happen <laughs> to be I happen to be having a couple of bourbons and watching whatever I was watching, and which gave me enough guts to just reach out to him right there on Facebook in an instant message and say, Hey, I'm having a couple of bourbons and watching Johnny Quest or or whatever. And he instantly just goes, Hey. I got this really cool idea. I saw some of the cars you did in the Rough and Ready thing. Do you remember the video game Spy Hunter? And I was like, yeah. It was one of my <laughs> favorite video games of all time. He was like, you want to do a Spy Hunter comic book? And I was like, absolutely. And he said, I got one question for you then. Do we make it modern or Cold War? And I said, it's got to be Cold War, man. All the cars look better. All the chicks look cooler. We got to make it vintage. Vintage guns, choppers, tanks, the whole nine. Make it feel you know, like a a Johnny Quest cartoon mixed with James Bond or something. He's like, okay, cool. When I get back in January after the holidays, we'll hash all this out in the office. And I did a brief pitch for it in text message form right there while we're having our bourbons. Uh, And and he's like, yeah, I like it. This this is cool. When I get back to the office, uh, I'll call you. Uh, He gave me a date, whatever it was, January 2nd or 3rd or 4th, whatever it was. And then he just calls me up at the house and we just start rapping about it. We just start talking about it. And uh, he said, okay, so I got this idea. Warner Brothers has this video game IP from the eighties. We want to do a big push in a year or two or three, we're going to get a bunch of creatives together to do their take on gen X's favorite video games. Like you're the games you loved when you were a kid. We want to do a story version of this. We'll put them together as just like this little nostalgia push and uh and see, see what we can do see where it goes there was uh, joust was uh they were somebody was going to do something creative with joust they were going to give the you know those dinosaur, flying dinosaur writer guys uh, a story to, to them uh i i can't remember all the other ones maybe zaxon i don't know i can't remember the the other games but they had the they had the rights to them they had the warner brothers had the ip and uh, so he said, okay, so you're gonna be handling all the chores on this book. I was like, yeah, sure. Well, pencil in color. And uh, I said, uh, I'd like Rousseau, the letterer from uh, the Mercenary Sea to come on it because he's, he's my buddy. And uh, he's like, okay, you got him. He was like, so you're writing this thing too. And I said, well, <laughs> um, maybe we should bring a pro in to make sure it's not retarded. And, and he laughed really hard and he said, Okay, I understand what you're saying. You know, I probably should have just written it. But uh I he said, Who do you want? And I said, Larry Hama. And he said, if you can get Larry Hama, I'll green light the thing right now. What he didn't know was that Larry and I were already buddies. <laughs> so uh I I contacted Larry and I was talking to him about Spy Hunter, and he was like, What? <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's like it's, it was this video game in the in the early 80s. We all loved it. And, you know, it was meant to be James Bond, but it's this great car and machine guns. And uh, I want to do like a, a Cold War era espionage story. And for about five minutes, he was like, huh? And <laughs> so I had to slowly explain it to him. And finally, he was like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Larry does play video games, but Larry plays like four. Flights, fighter, fighter plane, flight simulators—the highest end that you can imagine. Like he's like in an A10 Warthog with like the exact control readouts, like a perfect flight simulator, dogfighting MIGs. You know, what I mean, uh, on the game with
0: the with the fancy control. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So anyway, we started putting it together, and um, the coolest thing about it was, I, I get real, I'll get even more dorky, but my favorite memory of the whole project was the whole time it just felt like he was writing it all for me like i felt it felt really personal i felt like i was paperboy and he was spy hunter like that dynamic that you see in that book that's the way it felt working with him the whole the whole time and i tell people you see, every once in a while, you see somebody who put a, a post up on social media saying he's a grump or, or something. It's very rare. People don't normally talk trash about Larry. But Larry's like the friendliest drill instructor you could ever have.
2: Like, <laughs> <laughs> imagine
1: you're going into the Army. He's a drill instructor. But it's the friendliest drill instructor of all time. That's been my relationship with Larry. And even when I messed up, like even if I made mistakes... Um, because he he knew how much time that I had put, put in on, on, on this, this thing, even when I messed up, he wouldn't be like, that doesn't work. He would be like, okay, next time try this. I'd be like, okay. You know,
0: Matt, what is an example of you messing up?
1: He didn't like all the orange in California in the opening of the first issue. He was like, what's with all this orange? Um, I, I had I hadn't done that in any other books. I, I'll work with blues, reds, greens. So all the all the sunset stuff in orange. Larry thought this is too much. Like this is a lot. This is like issue one is wildly orange. He didn't make me change it, and, <laughs> and he didn't even say all those words that I just said. What he said was, "I love it." What's with all the orange? And that was the end of it.
0: <laughs> okay, and then when did? Paperboy show up in the, in the pitch or the concept, because this isn't just a video game tie-in. This is an arbitrary crossover of two video games yeah. that have nothing to do with each other. This isn't like like, you know, Mario going back to Donkey Kong.
1: Yeah Well, I, the way I pitched it was, and Larry made the whole thing better, just like I said to Dan, I said, maybe we need to have a pro come in here so it's, so it's sound. But um, I put together a story about a, an, this kid uh, it was half Irish, half Mexican kid in California that is, uh, you know, maybe 12 or 13 years old. He's uh, he's an orphan, but the city doesn't know that he's an orphan. And uh, he's got a he's got a paper route. That's how he makes his money. He plays little league baseball. Like I put a lot of things from my childhood in, in, into this. And one night, um, a friend of his who is just a friendly person that he delivers papers to, two Russian assassins kill this man and uh, he witnesses it and there's a radio involved. And uh, he starts talking on the rate. He he runs from these guys and the, these Russians are trying to kill him and uh, he loses them, circles back around and goes back to his friend's house, um, the guy. who OK, Matt, yeah. so
0: this is. This is the story explanation. Yeah, but in the in the conceptual, did Dan Didio say to you, "This is going to be a video game crossover"? Yes. Okay. It didn't it didn't start as just Spy Hunter? It did start as Spy Hunter and this other game. Figure it out. That's correct. Okay.
1: Yeah, he said, "I want to do a Spy Hunter pa- Paperboy mashup." What do you got?
0: Okay. Uh, and the same the same way that DC did some of the Hanna barbera and dc superhero mashups correct correct okay because because two is better than one yeah
1: yeah well whatever i don't know
2: yeah you were describing the the plot there essentially from from issue one so so was it a case of you you coming up with a lot of the plot and then and then handing it across to hammer and and say right this this is my idea now you know give it a bit of a spit and polish Turn it, turn it into a proper script. That little or...
1: little snippet that I just told you guys—that's the only thing of my uh, original pitch that Larry picked up on. Like he from and and even what appears in the in the the actual comic book does not happen the way that that I had pitched it. Like Larry made everything much smarter. He gave everything a lot more heart. He made everything work. Like everything became sound like having a, a, a radio transmitter needing a relay out in the water from, from the other guys, being jammed, um, using uh, military satellite systems to bounce messages around the globe. And it's it's supposed to be 66. I know it says 1964, but while I was working on it, it was 66. I mean, you'll see a piece of artwork that says 566. That was promo art. Consequ- uh, also, by the way, issue number one, that cover, that was promo art. That was never meant to be the cover for issue number one. That was just the first artwork that I did for DiDio, and he was like, you know, badass, let's go. Um, issue number two, I did not do that cover. Somebody slapped together some images from inside the book. This was during COVID. Hmm. Slapped some images together and put that on there. Issue number three, that was the first Cover that I did for Spy Hunter. That was the first one, and it's really not even finished. Like I sent it in, it got used anyway. When COVID hit, everything fell apart. Issue four, that's just images slapped together from my artwork from inside the pages. Issue five, that was the second cover that I did for the Spy Hunter Paperboy series. And issue six that you see there, again, that was just slapped together by somebody in an art department. So huh. they, they just threw it together. So really, I only did two covers for Spy Hunter and Paperboy one issue one. That was just that's me. And it's but it was just promo work that I put together. Um, so and weird things happen with contracts. Like I wasn't paid for five of those issues. I was paid for two, you know, so the covers. you mean? Yeah, uh, covers. Yeah.
0: OK, so you make comics digitally. Yeah. And you have talked to us about reading comics on paper and drawing on paper from comics that are physically in front of you. Mm -hmm. Do you read comics on screens? How do you feel about this being digital first?
1: The only comic books that I read digitally, I've got like the first three or four years of D.I. Joe, I've got like issue one through, I don't know. I don't know how far it goes. Pretty much through my wave of guys, maybe 85. Like I've got all those issues digitally. That I can read on my phone or that I can read on a pad, but uh, no, I've got a couple of things that are digital because I can get them digital only. But um, no, I, I prefer to have a physical copy. I mean, uh, I don't, I don't know. Um, I mean, it was, it's pretty heartbreaking. The Spy Hunter thing comes out; it's like hardly even announced, and part of me believes that it, it would not have been announced, or it might not have even come out. When the ATT acquired uh, DC. Okay, so here, here's some more fun. Spy Hunter happens, put, put it together. We're working on it, put it together. Another Christmas. Dio I'm talking to Dio and I say, okay, I've got this idea for um, DC's combat comics. The All that combat IP that you have. I want to do a weird war story where Griffin the Werewolf in 1969 is no longer a part of the Creature Commandos. He's a street bike. He's a biker gang guy solo he's a werewolf biker gang guy in california that can't stop drinking and getting in trouble and his handler faraday shows up bails him out of jail and says i can't stop doing this you're a real problem you know the cops found you completely naked your bike was totally trashed they don't know why there's not a scratch on you because they don't know you're a werewolf And the people that you the Hells Angels that you messed up in that bar, six of them are in intensive care right now. No, you didn't fully transform, but you turned into something that they think they saw. I've got to give you a job. I've just been promoted uh, with my intelligence agency. We think that your brother is alive on a second dinosaur island, the brother you lost in the Pacific War. So the story follows Griffin, the werewolf. Breaks into Area 51, steals the GI robot, and takes him to Dinosaur Island 2 to find his brother. And DiDio was like, that's insane. Let's do that. That's crazy. Because he likes monsters and combat and stuff. He's like, yeah, let's totally do that. This was at Christmas. And he said, when I get back January after Christmas break, we'll set up all the contracts and do all that stuff. He gets back and gets canned. So Chiorello got canned just before that. The deal gets canned just after that, so the creature commando dream project that I had doesn't doesn't happen. Drag, and then you know COVID's going on. Larry writes me; he's like, "What's going on with Spy Hunter?" I said, "I don't know, man. Everything's been in a standstill. I I really don't know." And he said, "Well, I know Javins. I'll give her a shout. Find out what's going on."
0: You mean uh, you mean editor in chief uh, Marie Javins? Yeah,
1: she replaced the deal. And so he said, I'll give her a shout and see what's going on.
0: Sorry, you you had finished it by this
1: point, right? Yeah. Okay. And it's just sitting
2: there. And how how long, you mentioned you spent a long time on it. How how long did it actually take uh, the project?
1: I don't know. Um, I might have taken two years. I had no deadline. Like the DO, I was reporting to the DO essentially. I had no deadline. There was supposed to be other teams of creators creating content so that it could all come out in the same splash. Mm. I don't think they had anybody else. I don't think there was anybody working on a Joust comic book or anybody working on a, a whatever, Zaxxon comic book or whatever the other, I could be wrong. Then COVID hits and then we're just sitting on everything. Everybody shuts down. Uh, comic book store owners are losing their their livelihood. Uh, comic creators are like, what? what, what are we going to do? You know, I, I, I wrote Shaken, or I talked to Shaken on the phone and he said, I don't know, man, none of us know what's going on. None of us know what's happening. We're just going to have to ride this out and see what goes on. And,
0: um. Okay. So Hama reaches out to Javin. What does he say?
1: He says, I'll I'll give her a shout and find out what's going on. Dude, 15 minutes later, she emails me. Like, so it's like lightning. Larry Hama strikes like lightning. (laughs) And, uh, she, she just sends me an email and says uh, uh you know uh, we're gonna we'll we'll figure something out we'll get this we'll get this and i can't help but shake the idea that larry was like you know this kid's not half bad okay and he, he really had a good time working on this with me and uh it's kind of like a dream thing for him so if you can figure out some way to make this happen i don't know if he said that stuff specifically but that would all be 100 percent true and um uh, so, yeah, lightning strikes. Larry Hama strikes. Marie Javins writes me, says, we'll figure something out. Even if it's just a digital release, we'll get it out there. I was like, okay. And then I talked to Hama later. And, you know, I was like, what, what happened? Like, they didn't, there was no promotion. Nobody knew about it. And uh, I talked to, you know, Larry said, I don't know, kid. We might have got tangled up in some weird politics. He said, that's probably likely you know I didn't push it past that but he was probably talking about inter uh, um, office politics of some kind you know the deal was canned he might have made some people there mad they might not they might have wanted to incinerate everything that he had in the wings that he was working on and replace it with their work and this would have been taken in that call at the same time our bad guys in the story are Maoists and Marxists I mean it's an American mercenary fighting Maoist Chinese and Marxist Russians. And Warner Brothers and all the big studios are courting China during this time period to try to sell their IP to China and their movies and everything. They're altering, Disney's altering things for Chinese releases. So there might have been some weird politics. I mean, uh, I really don't know. I don't know. And And also,
0: without the other video game tie-in books, it's a weird orphan.
1: It's weird, exactly.
0: I have to feel like as someone who draws digitally, you might love how it looks as a digital release because the colors are going to be pretty close to what's on your monitor. Whereas if it gets published, if it gets printed on paper... Uh, the colors are all going to be a little bit different, right? Okay, Maybe here's, here's,
1: yeah, here's some fun G.I. Joe dorky stuff. This, this one is a real weird one. It's juicy. You guys are going to love this. So, <laughs> so when I got uh, my issue of uh, Annual 2, there's a section where they're showing cells, animation cells of the animation series that's going to be coming out. It hadn't come out yet. But in that Annual, there are stills from that animated miniseries. Um, and I, I was so excited to see these stills of the animated G.I. Joe series. You know, I mean, I, clearly you can see all of these influences in my style. Now, there's a weird thing that happens with my artwork when it goes into print. What you just said about the color, it looks different digitally than it does on paper. Here's the weird thing there's, I have a real nostalgic love for the way it looks on paper just because of those printed stills from G.I. Joe annual two of the cartoon.
0: This is the article, Joe's on television. That's correct. Yeah. A text text article about upcoming episodes.
1: That's correct. And the color looks slightly different printed in a comic book than it does on your TV screen. So there's always a little part of me when I see my stuff in print that thinks, this just reminds me of that warm feeling I had when I saw those stills of the G.I. Joe cartoon in eighty-four or eighty-five, you know, so it's, I'm real dorky and nostalgic about it. I don't mind the color change at all.
0: Interesting. Yeah. That's a good deep level of G.I. Joe nerding out. <laughs> so as a follow up, Matt, are you are you making any decisions when you are drawing and coloring digitally because you know it is going to print on paper? I'm thinking about sort of uh saturation yes. or yeah. contrast. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. They're they're uh Sometimes things tend to be a little bit darker on paper, so I have to be careful, um, and I'm still kind of eyeballing that. So uh, issue the cover of issue three right there, like I thought that whole thing was going to be a lot darker. Like that's I you know that's how it looks digitally, but I expected to be printed on a on a book. So I thought I expected there to be more a little more contrast uh, in that picture. Same with uh, the cover to issue five. Like I'm always afraid of going too dark um unless I'm going flat black so yeah
2: like my, my question was going to be so so there's the digital release that then happens for for this and is that is that the end of the Spy Hunter and Paperboy story is there any more to it
1: well I mean I I had we had a sequel and then in the sequel it's not 1966 it's Johnny Martinez in 1982 or 83. He's now the spy hunter and it's the video Man. game, the video game that we saw as kids. So it was all modernized. Now Johnny is 1982. Johnny Martinez is the spy hunter, but it's all boom boxes and parachute pants and Corvette <laughs> from the 80s.
0: Okay, Matt, what you were describing is a like one paragraph pitch or like a 30 minute conversation, right? There's no work done on
1: it. That's correct. Yeah, yeah, Um, I don't even know how that would happen.
0: Um, You said you were you said you were a big fan of the Spy Hunter video game. Were you a fan of the Paperboy video? game? Not
1: so much. I mean, I remember it, but Spy Hunter blew me away. Like I I went I had mowed my yard for my stepdad and had my uh, I, I think I got a buck. I think I got a buck for mowing the yard or something. It might have been two. And um, I had gone to the corner store, gone to Seven Eleven, 7-Eleven, and they had two new video games in there. Or, well, they at least had one. And I had gone in there to get a Coke and a bunch of penny and nickel candy and maybe an issue of Savage Sword of Conan or G.I. Joe or something. And I went in there and saw this video game for the first time in my life and lost my mind. Spent my whole allowance on the video game, jumped on my bike, rode all the way home, raving to my stepdad about this video game. Like, you have to see this video game. And and fortunately, he likes video games, too. Like, if, if we'd go to a pizza place where they had video games, he'd throw some quarters in the video game and do stuff. You know, it was he just dug it, too. And I described the game to him. It was like, it's like switchblade tires and oil slicks, and you and, and can't explain it. You've you got these two machine guns out of the front of you. You're wasting these guys that are trying to kill you on this highway. And I was so excited. And he said, well, go, go get some more, man. And he goes, he goes into his pocket and gives me $4, and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe just, just uh, through sheer excitement. I had already blown the $2 that I had been given for cutting the grass. And just because of my sheer excitement, he's like, Well go give it hell. Here's four more bucks. So I go right back up there and spend all four dollars on Spy Hunter. You know what I mean? <laughs> Did you guys notice the I don't know if you're if if you know much about the history of Maoism or Marxism, but Larry Larry put some li- really juicy details about both those philosophies in Spy Hunter. I don't know if you picked up on them.
2: Mm, not so much.
1: It's just that um, there's a slight difference between the two philosophies, and Larry knows. So, like, there's there's a the, <clears throat> there's the old submarine uh, tender guy that says something to to her as they disembark, and she scolds him about his, uh, you know, pre Maoist uh, uh, ancient Chinese uh, philosophies have no place in the in the new. Uh,
0: I, yeah, I took that as as Hama doing his sort of funny, cynical, self-flagellating, like political commentary. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. like can't can't speak ill of the current regime. No, like, it's, it's gonna not, make it it's good.
1: authentic. It's authentic. Okay, I mean, she wow. would have said that. Like,
0: okay, because I laughed uh, out loud when I got uh, to that Yeah.
1: yeah. and she tells him to like seek counsel with uh, yeah. some sort of handler. Yeah, and then uh, uh, Sokolov talks about who watches The Watchmen and, and that stuff that's all tied in heavily with the, the Marxism as opposed to Maoism. It's funny how many little tips of the hat he snuck in there. Um, also, uh, young Stevie Wonder is in the, is in the book as, <laughs> as uh, in the gas station, part of the cleanup crew that clean, cleans up Merlin. They bring Martinez, his bike. But you only see him in one shot. It's a black guy with sunglasses. But that's actually
0: is, is is that you decide making an art decision yes. or in Hama's plot? No, is he no, just no, casting no. no. It's
1: not supposed to be Steve Wonder. I just okay.
0: because Hama, Hama does Hama does cast people uh-huh. he knows yeah. or like famous actors in roles in yeah. his plots. And you were correct
1: think, about uh, Russ Heath and Morrow. Like uh, I tried to get um, Heath's likeness as close as I could when he showed up. So, I mean,
0: it's hard when you, it's only, it's hard when characters are only on panel for two two or three
1: shots. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah. So. Did you
2: find out about those uh, pilots who they, they are supposed to be?
1: No, I don't think there's any secret backstory behind those guys. It's just that he wanted them to be, uh, he did, he didn't give me much. The only description he had was two kind of waspy looking white dudes with nice Rolex watches on that's all he gave me so <laughs> I put in the vodka bottle like them passing the bottle of vodka <laughs> and he liked that he thought that was really funny these drinking pilots and uh, them handi- handing the bottle to Bowman anybody want to warm up and Bowman's like yeah pass it pass it over here uh, and there's a spot where they flipped over and they're taking the G's really hard and there's some golf clubs that pop up in the background. I I figured these guys are drinking vodka and playing golf all day when they're not, you know, doing CIA wet work project stuff. Um, Yeah. So that was pretty cool. It was pretty fun stuff.
0: Mark, I was going to, I was going to ask a question about now and the future, but before I do that, Mark, do you want to ask any more questions about stuff we've been getting to up till now?
2: Sort of, it's it's playing in the same um, it's playing in the same ballpark. I had a one specific question, but but before that, I, I wanted to ask one just about Spy Hunter, which was the overhead gaming. Yeah, you down on the on the road was was that right. was that coming from you?
1: Yes, yeah. Larry, Larry gives me very few camera. Angle. He doesn't give me camera shots really. Uh, he just gives me the story. I, I I was just thinking, we've got to do this now. This is the final issue. Uh, anybody that knows the game will really get a kick out of this. And so I'm doing this. Yeah.
0: Okay. So um, uh, I don't think I actually said this in our previous episode, but in those panels in the final issue, which do match the game uh, I haven't done a comparison side by side, but based on eyeballing it and memories, the cars do match.
1: Uh, Sort of.
0: Sort of. Were you, okay. Okay. So were you working that in? Were you feeding stuff to Larry? Uh, was he doing any research on the game?
1: Larry does research on everything. And here's another thing. He sent me file after file after file after file of every vehicle and firearm and everything that he was talking about. He never left me in the deep end. Not once.
0: You mean you mean JPEGs? He's emailing you like a JPEG, JPEG. or two for every car. This is, right.
1: an, this is a grenade launcher from the time period. Uh, you know, the, the only thing that he left to me was the car. Like this... I had the car put together. I wanted it to be this model. Um, this the I'm completely locked up on what model. I, I should be skinned for not remembering what model of car this is.
0: Okay, I'm if you remember it. later, yeah. if you remember later, Mark will superimpose it yeah. over <laughs> over me talking right now. Yeah.
2: The spy hunter car was based on an Alfa Romeo 33 Stradale. That's an Alfa Romeo 33 Stradale. Now back to the show
1: um and I just knew that i that i it just looks so sexy, like the curves the car looks like a beautiful girl i mean i mean it's it's just a really sexy car, you know, um, but he would send me tons of uh, uh jpegs of here's the guns, here's the this, here's the that just uh and anytime I'd run into a problem or I'd be like ah, I don't know if I can get the angle on that or or uh or, or whatever, he'd be like, don't worry about it. Just try not to do anything. If you find a substitute, go ahead and use a substitute. It's not a problem. Just try to try to keep it pre 1970, okay? I mean, we need to try to keep everything as vintage as possible. I'm trying not to use, and anything we use that was actually didn't show up militarily in the field until whatever, 68, 69, 70, we just treated them all like they were prototypes because they would have been somewhere years earlier on a drawing board or in a in a warehouse
0: that was a good cue let me follow that thread in the video game in the original video game you see the car from above yeah. in the gameplay and you see one or two angles of it on the marquee on the sides and like in the m- merchant uh, marketing materials yeah. so what was your thinking of adapting or not the original video game car design for the comic
1: I was just greedy I just loved the body of this car it was like I don't care
0: the, the one that you ended up with the one that you were based you were thinking of
1: well, and also we you know it's it's 15 years before so the I I might have gone closer to the the one in the game which may be a Lamborghini like Martinez he might have been in that actual car you know and had that black leather jacket and the the glove in, in the sequel yeah mm-hmm. in the sequel that takes place in 82. Yeah. and and everybody's still alive it's just that Bowman is not the uh, he's not the primary agent Bowman's in a support facility of some uh, faculty of, of some kind uh, Tanaka same all the players are back unless you know chief got wasted in a, a bar somewhere which is likely but but yeah no it was just me me I found I, I got a 3d model of this car and I could stretch the perspective on it. And it was, uh, I just thought it was really beautiful. And I was like, this, I'm going to use this car. Like, this is how this is going to work. Because I'm i am not somebody that can just bust out a beautiful body of a car like this without spending hours and hours on it. So, I mean, that wasn't the only digital model that I used. There were many digital models used for this in order to make it look like, uh, friends of mine have said, it looks like. You're playing with toys. I mean it's they, they remind me of toys. I mean, there's something about it that is whimsical like that, and uh, I like that aspect of it too. so
0: um, Matt, there are sequels to the original video game. there's that movie that never happened. Right. Were you uh, Didio Hama at all thinking about anything beyond the original game?
1: Didio might have been. I think more than anything. As far as my discussions with Dan went, he was just really fun and enthusiastic, and he he just liked my enthusiasm, like the same way that I got my dad to give me four more dollars to go down there, and, and because I was so excited about this video game. As soon as he heard me being that excited, he just he was just happy. I think he was just good old fashioned. This sounds fun and happy, and everybody is happy. You know, I think I don't know how much forethought he put into it. You know, it's the same with the uh, uh, creature commando story that I wanted to do. It's completely insane. Werewolf soldier goes to Dinosaur Island with combat robot to to find his brother. And uh, it turns out there's a bunch of Nazis got washed up on the island. And he's going to go in there and waste a bunch. You know, it was just insane fun. Like uh, some kind of Tarantino or John Carpenter or John Milius uh, story. That There's no moral. You know, there's no... There's no, we're not delivering any message other than this kicks ass, you know? Uh,
0: have you seen Hama in person since uh, the, the pitch days um, in Texas? And- I have not. Okay. It
1: just, uh, uh, we've Zoomed or Skyped a couple of times. I don't really do the Zoom thing. So the first time I actually did it was with him. We were talking about the Vic Falcon thing. And he's in this room this little room this was was in his uh new york apartment and and he's got like the storm shadow room secret room upstairs and uh there's kick-ass models everywhere and cool little toys everywhere and then he pulls up an mp40 a german submachine gun boom like puts it right right in the camera sideways and he's like check this out and i was like whoa (laughs) and he's like yeah man i mean he's essentially what you said, your observations about him having young kids and stories. They're, they're not the victims. They get integrated. They, you're very insightful with what you said about Hama's work and us as kids. We want to be a part of the team. We want to know if we can hack it with this group of Joes that, that they're in. You're not thrown into a basket, kidnapped and thrown in the back of a truck and somebody's got to help. <laughs> you're trained by a ninja somewhere. You're, you're uh, you're helping Spy hunter somehow you' you know you're in there and you said something about I think it's because Hama in his heart is like 12 or 13 you know I mean he he still holds on to that and he does and I do too and and I, I, I'm sure you guys do too uh,
0: yeah the thing you mentioned earlier that you know one once or twice online someone calls Hama a grump uh, that's that's such a strange reaction because if you see him on a panel, or if you talk with him, he just cracks jokes.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Like he's he's pretty he's pretty uh, even keel. But like he will tell the story and he'll he'll laugh.
1: Yeah, he's very easy to laugh. That's one of my favorite things about talking with him on the phone. I mean, even if, uh, you know, uh, you know, he's very uh, like I said, he's like the friend friendliest drill instructor in the world. (laughs) I mean, uh, uh, and very easy to laugh. And even when I come to him like confused, you know like during COVID, i was like what's going on or you know what's going on with this weird political stuff that's going on i mean you know and he's like well we're just we're gonna have to ride it out and i don't know exactly and and uh he's very fatherly i mean in a lot of ways you know he's he's like this weird sort surrogate dad for us joe fans you know in a lot of ways he was he's he was that for me as a kid i felt like everything he says about the joes being a family that whole thing is very real. He nails it. He knows exactly what he's doing.
2: I I had a question, which was about you know having having this relationship and this this in with Halma um, being such a GI Joe fan. Was there any discussion about actually working with him on
1: GI Joe itself? We were going to do a Vietnam flashback story with the Lerp team, Tommy and Wilkinson and uh, Snake Eyes. Um, I've got I've got artwork for it. It was completely vintage, uh, long-range reconnaissance patrol. One shot uh, set in whatever 1968.
0: What happened?
1: It may still happen. I don't know. No, I mean it's it's uh, uh, it could still happen. I mean there's there's other stuff I'm working on. I, I still have my connections with him. He's he's now plugged in with the uh, the new uh, publisher, right? Yeah, Skybound.
2: Skybounds. It's continuing in, in, in three issue 301 is out due out November, I think, this year from Skybound. So Har- Hammer's still writing it. It's still coming out. So, yeah. so don't wait too long. Matt, as as uh as fans who write letters or as
0: highly influential and respected podcasters right. with a massive audience, <laughs> there is only so much we can do. We don't have the cocky uh, Booze fueled uh, confidence that might come at Christmas over Facebook <laughs> to just accost uh, the publisher of one of the um, one of the big two in American comics, and maybe with Hama or maybe just you on your own and mentioning Hama. I would I would encourage you to see if you can make a connection at Skybound yeah. with with Hama with Hama sure. and. Uh, sure.
1: I'd be a dream come true um, if I could do anything right now. It even Trump's uh like if somebody put a Johnny Quest series in my hand right now that would make me really really happy. Like set it like, you know, in 1964. It would be um, it would be a blast. Or if somebody put uh Indiana Jones story in my in my hand, it it would be a blast. But the number one thing I would do the, for the rest of my life would be draw GI Joe. I mean, it's specifically, I I would love to to draw the characters in an adventure after Vietnam before the Joe teams put together with, uh, with a crew in like 1978 or, uh, 1980, 1980, like, uh, you know, something that's not Vietnam, but it's all that time period. You know,
2: there was this, there was this issue that they had in the IDW run that Larry did, which was issue 225, uh, which was set sort of just before the formation of GI Joe where, Duke was on a mission to try and rescue his wife in the Middle East. And there was this mysterious sort of special ops team that came along to try and help them. And it was, there was a, like a ninja there with a sword, but it was like, you know, his face was all covered up and stuff. And uh, so, so, so I think he sort of dipped his toe a little bit in recent years into kind of a a view that maybe there's this proto Joe team right. that, that was, was doing missions. Talking Joe listeners, please begin politely
0: (laughs) posting, posting in places that Skybound editors and principals will see. And if you are emailing letters to your favorite Skybound letters pages, please put in a plug in your next message or email uh, for Matthew Reynolds to draw a Larry Hama G.I. Joe story. Um, Just to to clarify for our, our viewers who are watching this right now, uh, the piece of art that we're looking at is not connected to anything official it's, no, it was, it's just fan art, art that I made, made for probably film.
1: 2008.
0: Um, fan art from 2008.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean you can definitely see issue 21 how much of an influence it is. I mean yeah and uh, I actually sent you guys some some uh, uh, picture of Zap from Vietnam. So you've actually got one of my Vietnam pieces that I did. If you find there's I don't know if you've got access to it right now but it's uh it's called same shit, different day and it's zap holding an m16 in like 1968. so as if he would have been somehow in there and you know i would want like clutch to be in the motor pool there he out yeah, there he is there's zap he doesn't have his bazooka but i figure he's maybe not a specialist yet but that's okay
0: Matt, this this G.I. Joe story with Hama for Skybound that does not exist. Yeah. You're thinking you're thinking a couple pages flashback, 10, 12 page backup story, 22 page self-contained
1: issue. 22 page one shot. Double double-sized. Okay. Yeah, or or I'm not thinking mini-series. I mean, I'm thinking like maybe double-sized maybe, yearbook. Yeah, double-sized yearbook, maybe something like that. I mean, to do even just to do a 22-page story like Golden did and the in the annual number two to focus pour everything i've got into making sure all the the gear and the, the everything they're wearing is is authentic um and even messing around with uh, i don't know this might be too far but i mean if there was a story like said in 75 or 76 having like uh prototypes of flashes laser equipment that doesn't quite look like it did in 82 when we saw him as kids it's much bigger. Yeah, bigger, bigger <laughs> battery, um, or pro- prototypes of the jump pack. And I, I'd, I'd love to do a, like an adult take on it. Like where Clutch is like definitely drinking a bunch of Coors, working in the motor pool. You know, like he's not supposed to be, but he's got like there's like eight cans of Coors <laughs> <Yellow Bellies laughs> right. in there, and he's he's listening to Led Zeppelin and and. Uh, I think
0: this. I think this T for teen rated book may top out at Yo Jo Core. Right. Yeah uh mark i'm gonna i was gonna ask my my uh my final question unless you wanted to jump in i I was i was
2: just gonna make the observation that you know you talk to you talk to larry say you know maybe maybe there's a natural break point in between an art yeah maybe the next time they swap out the uh the artist who who maybe is only going to do four issues at a time before you know before the next artist comes on that would be a good time for maybe a standalone issue and uh Who's, who's got two thumbs and can draw the heck out of a standalone issue.
0: (laughs) That guy. Um, Okay. So uh, Matt, uh, before we hit record, uh, you told us about something you're working on right now and there's very little, you can tell the rest of the audience about it, but you can confirm that you are working on your next project right now. Yes. And it's, it, it's comics and it's in color and it looks like things you have drawn. It's a, it, in the past.
1: Yes, it's uh, slightly more serious um, than uh, Spy Hunter. Like you, you mentioned some of those animated faces that I would do. Like there's, there's like a handful of contorted, wild, crazy animation style faces in Spy Hunter. Like when somebody's about to get wasted or hit a car or something. That stuff is not happening as much. It looks more like the picture you've got on the screen. Like it looks more like this right here. It's, it's more serious. I mean, it's slightly cartoony, but I mean, yeah, look, come on. That could definitely be Lonzo Wilkinson right there.
0: Do you have a publisher? Do you have a, uh, like a schedule? Yeah. It
1: looks like it's going to be announced after the first of the new year. Okay. So that's all I know so far.
0: How long have you, you've been working on it for some time?
1: It was all on again, off again. Um, okay. on again, off again. Uh, I, Javins, Marie Javins, um, after I finished the Spy Hunter story, connected me with the writer that I'm working with. He's a pretty pretty big name. And uh, she sent the Spy Hunter stuff to him. And she said, this is interesting. You might want to see if this kid wants to do something. And he just took her up on it. And so I started started working with him on it. Yeah.
0: I, I look forward to um, its uh, inevitable delay when you get pulled off of it by yourself to do some G.I. Joe project. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I look forward to this project that you you can't tell us about getting bumps to 2025 or 2026 so I can selfishly get 10 or 20 pages of, of G.I. Joe uh, out of you. Um, uh, Mark, I have run out of questions.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I think I could quite easily keep on keep on going. Um, it's just knowing where to to stop and what to stop <laughs> talking about. But just because you've sent them to me and they're so cool, maybe maybe you can just talk a little bit about uh, the the danger close images that um, that you shared with sure. me. And yeah, yeah. The, um- uh, it seems to be that there's this, yeah, there's this sort of DNA of of the art that sort of that you know things that appeal to you. It's the kind of it's it's period setting, it's military, it's dinosaurs. Right. That's your jam.
1: Yeah. So um uh, when we were all hanging our heads low during COVID and nobody knew what was going to happen, and we thought it's all over now, and I was like, well, I mean, hell, if this is the last hurrah and I might be dead in a couple of years, what would I just want to do? Like what makes me not feel sad? Cause it was a real depressing time. I, I went through a depression during that time. Um, and I, thankfully I came out of it, but it was like, I just got to think about stuff that makes me happy and, and get back to work because I wasn't working. I mean, it shut everything down. Uh, everything felt hopeless. Um, and so, you know, I came up with, uh, I wanted to do, I said, well, okay, I'll I'll just do this and I'll publish it just digitally online for free. At least it's something. And I can get eyeballs on it. And it might lead to something else. And if I wanted to do something, what would it be? And it was this Danger Close, Strange Tales of Combat and Survival. It was just going to be like five to eight page stories of crazy, strange tales of combat and survival. I mean, like Twilight, Twilight Zone.
0: Is this, is this you doing The War That Time Forgot?
1: Well, yeah. Um, these were the images that I sent to uh, uh, DiDio for the Dinosaur Island pitch. And he was like, this, okay. this totally works. And uh, so I just started putting this stuff together because it was fun. And I was inspired to do it because it's like a little boy playing with G.I. Joes and plastic dinosaurs in a sandbox when you're eight years old. And I started thinking all these daydreams that I had as a little boy, having the skills that I have now. Just go back and apply it to that fond time in my life when there was no COVID and before 9-11 and before trouble came into your life when you were just a kid and things were simpler. If you had the skills to do what you daydreamed about then, what would it look like if you did it now? And, and that's what these were. There's also a second project that I, that I still have called The NAM That Time Forgot. And that's what was born from this Danger Close project. And it's just like this Twilight Zone project thing uh, uh, with uh, uh, Russian and Chinese communist scientists on the border of Cambodia and Vietnam in 1969 are fooling around with a technology they don't quite understand ripping a hole in the fabric of time and space letting prehistoric creatures spill into the jungles of Vietnam and Cambodia and within one month the Vietnam War is over and no, there is no <laughs> conflict. It's just mopping up all of these creatures that are eating people over there. So, and that was a very whimsical, fun thing. And I wanted to, to do it like it's not a linear story with like lead characters. It was meant to be a documentary. So, like if Ken Burns did a documentary about these soldiers and what happened to them, and uh, you know, you just see some unit with a bunch of cases of beer standing on a tyrannosaurus skull. With all their weapons, and you know, like, uh, like wow, we bagged one, and then the, the Dunang, you know, and it, it was just meant to be fun, crazy stuff. That's what this stuff was. Excellent.
2: It looks, uh, yeah, it looks amazing. Um, so uh, we've been talking quite a long time, so so we're probably coming to a, a sort of a natural pause, uh, even even though I feel like we could uh, we could keep on going so uh, so thank you so much for your time and and thanks so for uh, the efforts that you've been putting into uh, your art so that we can actually enjoy them as uh, just as as readers because it was uh, it was a thrilling discovery to to find out about the spy hunter and paperboy book uh, and uh, i think you know it will bring a lot of joy to all of those people that haven't yet had a chance to uh, to experience it as well and, and yes and of course very much looking forward to your- future projects and fingers crossed that issue of G.I. <laughs> Joe that, that will
1: definitely happen at some I'm point.
0: Dis- I'm already disappointed that it's not going to happen.
1: <laughs> I just want to stay in touch with you guys and keep you I'll keep you up to date on because if there's one audience that is going to dig the stuff that I dig and the stuff that I want to do, it's you guys and you're listening. I mean, basically everything I do is geared towards you guys. So.
0: Matt, I can promise you that I'm already disappointed that your G.I. Joe story won't happen because the <laughs> publisher and editors and, and schedules and availability uh, and politics. And uh, when it happens, we will definitely talk to you for two hours about cool. it. Cool, cool. Tight as a drum. That's what, uh, Mark, that's what I, that's what I f- w- was, was, was circling around my head in our previous episode, my, my review for the six issue for the story, the six issues of Spy Hunter and Paperboy. Tight as a drum, <laughs> cool, right? So, five issues, eight issues, no, six issues, yeah. right? Yeah, it's everything, everything you need, but also leaves you wanting more. That's my that's my one sentence sentence review.
1: Yeah, thank you very much. And the my whole feeling working on that project is can be summed up between Bowman and Martinez at the end of the six issues, where the kid's like, "This is the greatest day of my life." no it's the first day of the rest of your life and uh, that, was, that was basically a conversation between me and Larry Hama right there on that last page so yeah lots of love guys I can't wait to talk to you again
2: and if people want to find you or find out more about you is there a best place to go
1: I'm on Instagram I don't put a lot of stuff over there I'm on Facebook I pretty much only post artwork and goofy stuff over there but yeah, you can find me out there.
0: What What's your Instagram handle?
1: It's the same. It's all, it, it's probably all going to be Matthew Mac Ray Reynolds. So, uh, which again, my wife hates, but. Uh, those,
0: it's those, it's those four names in a row. No, no quotes. Yeah,
1: yeah no quotes. Okay. Yeah.
2: Excellent stuff. And so uh, if you enjoyed this, you can find us on talkingjoe.co.uk to find more uh, G.I. Joe comics talk and big thank you to all of our patreons who are continuing to support us look look forward to the skybound era of gi joe continue to uh rediscover the devil's jew era and more besides like talking to fantastic artists uh tim uh, where can people find you when you're not talking to me uh, and matt uh, matt about uh gi joe
0: Video essays on TV and film at our YouTube channel, Atomic Abe Productions. My brick and mortar comic book store, Hub Comics, is in Somerville, Massachusetts. And I write about G.I. Joe at a realamericanbook.com.
2: So after all of that, I think we are done, which only leaves us to say, Tim, that
0: Nobody Bits Talking Joe, an international podcast. <laughs>
2: Indeed, laters
1: take it easy, guys. I just really love talking with you guys, and I would love to talk with you more.
0: You, sir, you must draw a GI Joe story for a ret- for a return invitation to our illustrious and popular uh, podcast. Well,
1: you know, maybe I should just do one, see what happens.